Hello, friends. Hello, hello, hello. Uh, I'm Chase Jarvis, and it's my job to welcome you to another episode of the Chase Jarvis Live Show here on Creative Live. God, I love this. You know the show. This is where I sit down with the world's top creators, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders and do everything in my power to unlock actionable insights with the goal of helping you live your dreams and career and hobby and life. My guest today is going to blow you away. His name is Mr. Reed Hoffman. You guys know that I use the term legend rarely in speech because I don't take that kind of stuff lightly, but in Reed's case, there is basically no more appropriate word for him. He is the true definition of a legend, one of the most successful and respected entrepreneurs and investors of all time. He first served, uh, well, he, he had a life before this job, but one of the ways where he really hit the big time was as the COO, the chief operating officer of PayPal, part of the, quote, PayPal mafia, him, him Peter Thiel, Elon Musk, some folks that got started early there at PayPal. Um, and then he went on to found LinkedIn, which completely redefined the concept of a professional social network. Ultimately, that was sold to Microsoft for $26 billion, with a B, dollars, uh, and he's now on the board at Microsoft. As a venture partner, he's uh, at a partner at Greylock, which is one of the top firms in the world. Full disclosure, it's actually an investor in Creative Live as well. That's one of the ways that I became friends with Reed through this process. We've been with them for, gosh, for five years now. And he has in invested in so many other top companies, Airbnb, Flickr, and as I said earlier, <laughs> Creative Live. He is the author of some of the my favorite business books. Uh, one in particular, the relationship, uh, focused on the relationship between employees and businesses. You know, it used to be you you went to work for a place and it was 40 years in the gold watch. And Reed and his co-writer Ben did an you know wrote an amazing book called The Alliance, which basically picked that apart and said that's not that doesn't have anything to do with reality. And here's what it looks like going forward, or here's what it could or should look like. It's one of the things that I've used to uh, as a framework for managing people, and an incredible book. He's also got one called The Startup of You which you know, we talk a lot in this show about personal brand, how to frame yourself, how to be intentional. He literally wrote the book, and he's involved with several nonprofits, Kiva, OpenAI, QuestBridge. Um, and one of the things I definitely want to call attention to is he has recently kicked off a new podcast called Masters of Scale, where he has guests epic wicked guests like we have on this show in his case they're all you know uh, entrepreneurs focused on building gigantic brands like Facebook for example so he said Sheryl Sandberg Mark Zuckerberg uh, Airbnb guests like Brian Chesky and Netflix founder uh, Reed Hastings as a, as a sampler platter there you get the idea in this episode we touch on a bunch of subjects ranging from leadership to entrepreneurship to going from zero to one getting started uh, and a little bit around investing one of the things I think is important about this episode is the common denominator is Reed's pattern recognition. He sees so many deals as a venture person. He gets advanced notice of so many trends. He's got his fingers on so much research that he, in some ways, can see the future. Uh, one of his nicknames in Silicon Valley is the Oracle, and it's because he sees these huge data sets. Um, he gets to talk to some of the brightest people in the world that he is full of knowledge, and he shares that knowledge on this show with us today. I'm super happy to have him on the show. Other stuff we touch on, uh, besides the podcast, we talk a lot about scale, 
within not just the context of his podcast, but what it means to grow something from just your thing to something that is really widely adopted, which, for example, as a designer, you would perhaps want your designs to not just be for your client, but to hit world scale and to be recognizable anywhere you take your work. We talk about some of the classic mistakes that that uh, entrepreneurs, solopreneurs, and leaders make, specifically as, as companies grow from zero to, say, one person and one to three or five. A lot of you ask me about uh, building teams. There's so much valuable stuff on this show. Um, we also talk about our shared background in philosophy. You guys, I think, know that my background in education, my formal background is in philosophy. Um, we talk about why just the idea of critical thinking, how you can improve that, and you know why it's valuable regardless of your uh, profession, specifically as a creator in what ways it can be valuable and, of course, as an entrepreneur. So a lot of other great nuggets. Uh, I should stop running my mouth and let you get into the show. Before we do, a quick word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by my friends at FreshBooks. FreshBooks are a cloud-based accounting software and it's designed specifically for you and me. That's right, for freelancers, solopreneurs, entrepreneurs, and the self-employed. Very stoked to have these guys on board. If you want to get your accounting on Rails, then I encourage you to check out FreshBooks. Sign up for a free trial at freshbooks.com slash chase. That's one sponsor. Today, we have another one. This show is also brought to you by Creative Live. Creative Live is the world's largest and best platform for creative and entrepreneurial education. And right now, you're saying, wait a minute, isn't that the company that you started? Yes, it is. It is my company, but they make this show possible. And if you don't know anything about Creative Live, you must check it out. It's where Pulitzer Prize winners, New York Times bestsellers, the best of the best teach photo, video, art design, music and audio, craft and maker, and the ability to make a living and a life in all of those disciplines. There is free content there 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And there's also more than 10,000 hours of content for you to access on demand. Thank you so much. Yes. I appreciate it. It's a long time in the making. You're a busy guy, but very grateful to have, have some time with you today. Delighted. Awesome. Speaking of podcasts, which we're recording right here, let's go right into yours. Congratulations. Uh, I, it's like uh, I saw it. I screencapped it the other day. The Chase Jarvis Live Show and Masters of Scale were both right at the top of the iTunes in the ooh. little player there. What was the, give me the story behind it. So maybe four-ish, five years ago, I realized that what Silicon Valley people tell the world about why Silicon Valley is magical is a radically outdated story. And so what Silicon Valley people, well, first, why is Silicon Valley special? Yeah. Uh, half of the NASDAQ created here. Right, this is, there's three million people in the whole area. That's not the people in the tech industry. That's three million people in the area. Uh, roughly half of the $100 billion plus new companies created here. Why is that? What is the magic? Right, yeah. What is the magic? Yeah. So the old story, which is important, but now no longer the real story, you say, well, we have uh, immigrants, entrepreneurs, technologists, technology companies, venture capital, major tech universities, you put them a soup, you stir it up, you have a culture that allows a kind of a no fear of failure or, or limited fear of failure to kind of run at these impossible problems, and then some of them work and magic. And that's true, but that now exists in easily 50 places in the world. Yeah. Maybe more than yeah. that. So if you say, well, if that was only the story, then there'd be 50 Silicon Valleys. And it's still not special then. Yep. Yes. And why is it that Silicon Valley is still amazing? And the answer is 
that we actually, in fact, have built a playbook around how to go to global scale very quickly that's kind of implicit, shared in the talent network, yeah. constantly evolving. I taught a class a couple years ago at Stanford called yeah. Blitzscaling. Very successful. Uh, I'm working with a, uh, my co-author, Chris Ye, on a book now on that, on, on Blitzscaling. And June Cohen, who is the former executive producer of TED, who, yeah. you know, delightful human being and super talented, came to me and said, hey, I think this would make a great podcast. You know, would you do this? And I was like, huh, podcast? I, didn't really, I, hadn't, I hadn't really thought about that. And you're super creative. I mean, I, I, I know good content. I know how to ask good questions. But making something magical, that's your business versus, and yours, you know, sure. both yours yeah, and, yeah. and, and yours. Yeah. So sure, I'd be delighted to do that. And um, it's been a blast. It's so much, it's so dense, the information that you pack into these podcasts. And I try and represent the same thing here to the folks listening and watching at home. But the reality of access, I mean, we've had folks like yourself, Richard Branson, Mark Cuban, Arena Huffington, you know, the world's best. And yet you have a different, I have a different relationship with those folks. I still consider them friends or mentors or, um, or advisors to some of the things that I'm doing and wildly inspirational. But you have a peer relationship with mm. these folks, and that allows you, I think, to get something special out of it. Now, right before we started the cameras rolling, I was like, how is it? And you're like, is, is it fun? Are you having fun? And, and I'm going to paraphrase. I was like, I didn't know it was going to be fun, but now you're having a blast. And what is it about what you're doing that's joyful for you? I think the thing that's joyful is it, uh, it's very easy to have a warm uh, and a uniquely insightful conversation because my friends know that I'm not there trying to to get them to spill a secret or to uh, or to catch the try, try to get them into saying something that they don't want to say that my entire goal is I know there's a bunch of things that they know and think that are super valuable to entrepreneurs around the world to anyone who's interested in this kind of magic of how do you scale companies and my only goal is to help them express that through a set of different questions. Yeah. And because I know them, I actually have some partial map to what yeah. that is. Yeah. Now, part of the joy is not just the, the, the camaraderie, the ease of the conversation, um, but also part of it is that actually, in fact, you know, uh, while some of it I know already, there's also parts of it that I go, Oh, that was really interesting. <laughs> I hadn't realized gaps, that. Some gaps in the <laughs> yes, story. Yes, exactly. Like, nice. like, that was really cool, and I learned something, and that's awesome, too. Yeah, it's the ability to have a, a heartfelt conversation with someone in an environment. This used to be live. There used to be you know, somewhere between 100 to 200 people, and I love that. Now we've just got a little camera here in the corner. For those of you who are at home and listening, we are broadcasting this via Facebook Live, but it used to be a big event, and I realize that that, that creates a lot of... Um, Again, a noise and joy, and then all these people are tweeting and all doing all this stuff. It's valuable, but the conversation, there was a gap between what I could get in this environment yes. relative to the really highly produced yes. event, so to speak. Yeah. Um, so that's why this is mostly podcast these yeah. days. Um, let's go talk about some of your guests. And for the folks at home, like you should subscribe. It's, it's Masters of Scale. Yep. Um, with Reed Hoffman, and I subscribed. I've heard the Zuck one. So why don't you talk about some of your favorite you know, recent episodes so the folks at home get a flavor? Well, um, all of my children are beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's right. You can't throw anybody under the bus. If, I'm just thinking if I reverse that yeah, question, like, that's exactly. a very tough question. A <laughs> yes. couple of highlights. How about that? A yes. couple uh, of highlights. 
Well, so, uh, like, for example, one of the ones that I was referring to that I had, uh, I had thought that in the history of Facebook, I was aware that early one of their cultural values was move fast and break things. Yep. And now it's move fast with scalable infrastructure. And so I had done what most not people... Not nearly as sexy, by the yeah, way. No, not nearly as <laughs> sexy. And I had actually made that kind of simple outside view of, oh, they learned more traditional business and they changed a the point of view. And so I asked uh, Zuck about this, thinking that the question I was asking was, uh, how did you grow and learn in your management structure? Because Zuck is an infinite learner. It's one yeah. of the things that's, that's among the many things that's awesome about him, yeah. that's one of the things that's awesome. And so I was expecting to get a little, here's what I learned. And yeah. he looked at me and said, what do you mean it changed? I'm like, well, phrase one, phrase two, change. <laughs> yeah. He's like, no, 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 no. We're always about speed. We're about speed of execution and effectiveness. In the early stage, that's move fast and break things. However, if you're breaking things at the big stage, fixing them slows you down, right? And so it's still optimizing for speed. It's just you have to realize that you have to keep stable infrastructure to optimize for speed. And yeah. I was like, oh, bing, bing, Got of me. course, right. right? Makes total sense. Of course. So you had, uh, I think everyone runs to the Zuck episode because you guys have a special relationship because there's a lot of insight, but also Cheryl Sandberg. Yes. I know that. Incredible. And, yep, and you know, Cheryl is a simply world-class leader mm -hmm. that I think other world-class leaders learn from. For sure. Uh, and uh, you know, one of the things that uh, Cheryl really kind of typifies a lot of what we're trying to do in blitzscaling, which is the, I know what the shape of things will be such that you set them up now with lightweight work and then you scale much more effectively. And like one of the powerful examples that she uses, because what people don't realize is setting up culture in these companies is really important. And that culture of how do we get to scale and preserve our mission, our coherence, our identity, as opposed to, oh, now it's a big bureaucratic organization. Yeah. So she has this great anecdote that she learned from her Google days, which was she started saying, oh, we're warm personal, so they would celebrate everyone's birthday on the day. Then you get to a group of like 100 people, and you're selling a rate of birthday every day. Every day. day. <laughs> right? And so then they move to, okay, we're going to celebrate yeah. the, you know, the, 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 July, birthdays. the June birthdays, the July birthdays, yeah. the August birthdays. Yeah. And of course, what that then does is that sets everyone back and they go, oh, now we're a big company. It's like oh, you took no. something away. Yeah, it took something away. Yeah. And so part of the lesson that Cheryl illustrated is say, look, be careful when you're setting up some of these things. So you just set it up from the very beginning of, we do August birthdays. That's what we do. And, that, and then, oh, it's still special and it's still going yeah. and it's a scalable mechanism. And it's those little simple things that help keep that sense of, we are still the people that we were yep. and the people we're on path to. And that kind of leadership technique, simple, easy, concrete, learnable by everybody, yep. is the kind of joys that you get from Cheryl. And the wisdom, uh, I'll borrow a phrase from Tony Robbins, two millimeters. The difference between those two things is like two words, right? We're yes. going to celebrate everyone's birthday or August birthdays. Yes. And it's it's so narrow, but it's so critical for the long. That's uh, incredible vision. So I'm not going to blow any more secrets from the episodes, but fantastic. I, I, um, kudos, a lot of great reviews coming in. Uh, I love how well it's produced. I think you guys have done a bang up job, so keep going. Yeah. Don't. That's all June and the team. Original music, all the rest of the stuff. Yeah. Like, when I listened to it, I was like, oh, that's really good. <laughs> Is that what you had in mind? <laughs> Wildly creative, you know. Obviously, we pride ourselves on making really powerful content here at Creative Live. That was super good stuff, so I'm, I'm hyped. Good job. Uh, 
I'm going to make this personal now. Mm -hmm. So you and I share something. I don't know if you know this or not. Yes, but I do. Aside from um, me being in the Greylock family, which full disclosure, you guys are investors. Yeah. Um, Happy, proud investors. Yeah, thank you very much. You've been on the platform before, uh, but we both share a background in philosophy. Mm -hmm. And I remember the first time I told my folks that, or actually it was not my folks, it was my parents' friend. I was, we were at a dinner party and I was like, yeah, I'm majoring in philosophy. And like, were well, you gonna philosophize about being unemployed? <laughs> and yet, you know, here I am, and this is one of the, my favorite things about the world we live in, there's a million paths to get to anywhere. Mm. And yet, philosophy has served me so well. And before I share why or how it served me, your background, you have some background, you got to be an uh, MA in philosophy, right, from Oxford, Yep, and master's studies, yep. Yeah, so, I know you also had some, was it AR, computer or computer systems or whatever, but a little bit of your background in education, and then and the point I'm trying to make here is that you can basically have any kind of background and, and go to a million different places, but talk to me about philosophy first and, and your schooling. So, um, I've always had a, my primary interest is in human nature and human condition uh, across everything. So when I was an undergraduate at Stanford, I was majoring in something called symbolic systems, artificial intelligence, cognitive science. And when people asked me what I was doing, I called myself a transcendental anthropologist, which was a kind wow. of a Kantian view yeah, of the of, of transcendental kind of, meditation. Yes, Kant. Yeah, yes there you go. exactly. Sorry, some nerd stuff. Out there <laughs> yes, we're we're, we're we're <laughs> philosophy geeking. Um, and then what I realized at uh, Stanford was that while we had these literally uh, leading edge, world class inventors in language, mind, artificial intelligence, cognitive science, uh, uh, we, as a set of theorists, lacked um, an understanding of what thinking was, really, what speaking was. And I went, okay, well, maybe it's time to go to go do professional philosophy, because philosophers have been wrestling with this question probably some, long before there was, you know, Scrolls and manuscripts, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? Clergy back in the day. Yes. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, doing yeah. it. And so, uh, and so, I was fortunate enough to win a Marshall, go to Oxford, and uh, what I most valued, actually. So I went there with a the theory that I was going to learn a lot about thinking and language, and I think I learned that everyone's pretty confused in these topics, including yeah. philosophers. Yeah. Um, although there's some philosophers who don't think we're studying like Wittgenstein and Chomsky and uh, Wittgenstein for sure. Okay. So three, you you read three papers. It was Wittgenstein, philosophy of mind, and philosophy of science. Because yep. it was kind of like, what are the three different angles to try to try to understand this? And um, and what I actually learned much more than the kind of the subject study, which is what I had started with, yeah. was how to think and communicate precisely. Like one of the things that. Um, I had this kind of delightful first tutorial experience um, where I, you know, I wrote a paper, it was crap, is what it was, and um, my tutor uh, opened with what is a classic Oxford philosophy line, which he says, uh, 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 there is both good and original thought in what you've written. The original parts are not good, and the good parts are not original. <laughs> right? And that was the most positive thing in the next hour of conversation. Wow. And that uh, experience uh, was an enormously honing experience of taking the activity of thinking and writing much more seriously to when you're presenting something, yeah. to try to be as close to true as possible and try to be precise about it and understand the nuances of it. Because one of the things that I found about uh, philosophy training was that I got a lot better, not just in 
thinking and arguing, but also in a question of like theorizing. Like what's, what is an accurate theory? Like, um, so for example, one of the things I do on, on startup companies on the board of is to say, well, what's your theory of winning this game? And part of the things that underlies the, mm. the precision of the expression of that theory is actually my philosophy training. Right? It's like, Brilliant. do we understand really what your strategy is and really what the moving parts are yep. and what your theory is about why you're going to win this game? I love the, f well, A, I'll share that our, our interests, I think I, you can only connect the dots looking backwards and I'll confess mm. that I went into it just being, I was pre-med and, and was you know being whipped by cultural's val culture's values of what successful would, and then when I started tapping into philosophy, and this is how I'm going to bring it around to the folks who are listening, you know, largely creators and entrepreneurs that are, are watching and listening to the show, is that the ability to explicate what you mean. And for me, originally, it was, it was art, how to position the product that I was creating relative to a million other people and why it was beneficial or different. And, and that certainly carried on into my life as an entrepreneur, being able to be precise about displaying the vision and mission that you have or that you're, that you're going for. It turns out getting other people to be excited about your stuff is very valuable. And if you can't tell, what, tell people what you're doing or why, or in, in the case of a creator, trying to get people excited about what you're building, uh, what you're making and selling, that you're gonna struggle. So there's this, it's, uh, I'll never forget, Leon Rosenstein, this is one of the professors at San Diego, the fine institute of San Diego State, hmm. San Diego State where I went, not so fine, I went there on a soccer scholarship. However, he wrote, it's more important to have a well-formed rather than well-filled mind. Yes. So I feel like philosophy gave that. By the way, the, uh, since his, uh, art is an interest, let me yeah. share with you a funny, um, funny experience I had a year or two ago. So I'm always very curious to learn about art. I actually don't know very much. I know that a lot of people know more. Uh, and so I went to this event at MoMA, and I, I, I did the kind of that, that earnest student thing, and I sat in the front row because I was like, I want to learn about this. And, um, and so the curator starts up and says, so I'm going to start with some pieces by my, my favorite um, up-and-coming artist, or one of my favorite up-and-coming artists. And... It's this um, professor of MIT, at the MIT Media Lab, Neri Oxman, who's a friend. And I was yeah. like, wait, wait, I know something. <laughs> I, <laughs> I know, know a little. That's right. <laughs> right. It was awesome. Anyway, so it was a, kind of it was a funny art delight thing. Because I actually uh, agree with you about that creativity, that invention. Not only is that uh, super important for the human condition, super important for how we express ourselves, we find yeah. our identities, how we uh, uh, make something of ourselves in the world, have meaningful lives. But I actually think... Uh, part of this whole understanding of kind of the art world and being able to express it uh, precisely is I think that as we, as we go more into the world of automation and kind of workforce change, actually, in fact, those elements of creativity are going to be critical for, uh, for the, many of the job industries that are going to be growing. Yeah. And so I actually think it's more important than ever that we actually learn that, study it, you know, promote it, enable it within the world, so. Yeah. No, beautiful, and that's a feather in the cap for everyone, everyone who's listening watching. I just gave a keynote at the Next Web, the big European tech mm -hmm. conference, and the title of the keynote was Creativity is the New Literacy, focused specifically on, you know, and right before me was a robot on stage, and, and it was a, it's a tech conference, so I got to be the very unpopular person and say, all right, features AI, AR, VI, VR, all of the acronyms, and that only works if the machines are a layer on our own creativity. Mm -hmm. And 
obviously somewhat controversial, but I, I really, and, and it's great to hear you uh, sort of underscore or punctuate that point, that is one of the things that, that separates us from some of the other species on the planet and our ability to not just think critically but take two things at one point unlikely to be connected, putting them together to make something new and novel. Um, and so there you go. One of the, 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 the brain of Silicon Valley is focusing us on creativity. Um, if, you're not, if you're not paying attention, you heard it here at least first. First, you're the, you're the first <laughs> smartest person besides me who said it on this show. Creativity is new literacy. Um, so if we're following, I'm going to pull on that thread for yeah. a second. Y you know, one of the ways that we talk about how fortunate we are to have the investors that we have um, is that uh, you all see 10,000 deals a year and you have to choose 10. And in many ways... Zero to two per, per, per partner. Zero to two per to partner. two per partner per Rough. year. Yes. Yep. So very, very, very few. Um, and to me what that underscores is not how lucky we are, but, but that you have had to become great at curating. Hmm. And the curation uh, is a taste point of view, and it's based also on all kinds of data. Where that data is explicit means ones you can grab and hold on a piece of paper and look at balance sheets, or implicit like founder DNA or where the market's going. Do you think of yourself as a curator, and what role does that play in your thesis around investments, and how do you see the hmm. next big thing? So that's interesting. Um, I probably don't think of, I definitely think of myself as an editor and an investor. I tend to think of curators as putting a set of things in juxtaposition, like a museum curator is, well, this is how I do the hallway, this is what I put next to each other, yeah. this is how I set up the thing. Um, and so I don't tend to do that across yeah. my investments. That's interesting. Uh, yeah. Because each investment is like a unique uh, kind of shot on goal. The way I think about it, this going back to our philosophy backgrounds, yeah. is Archimedean levers. Like uh, the company, the technology, the product, the service, is a lever by which you move the world. And can you, can you make that lever big and robust enough through kind of go-to-market strategies, building a product, building a service, et cetera. And, and so each one is actually, in fact, uh, more unique. In part because, by the way, you know, part of what you tend to do when you um, invest in something is you ally with it. Mm -hmm. And you become a, we're trying to help this, this, this work. And so, you have to be careful that if you have projects that are in the same space, both of those projects are super comfortable with you being involved with both projects, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? So, so to some degree, it tends to be the and now for something you know kind of different, and now for something different, and now for something different versus yeah. curation. Now, the thing that you do though is that you're looking for some combination of amazing entrepreneurial talent, um, something that makes a huge difference if it pulls off its risks and works. And that's something that, um, that that initial plan for getting there, which always changes over time, yep. um, is something that shows a coherent shot on that market, a shot on that, uh, on that, on that goal. And um, the, the frequent, the, the challenge of the curation is, is you meet lots of people and lots of projects you'd love for them to work. You know, yeah, they're yeah. interesting to do. Yeah. And the, the challenge you end up with is zero to two per year. 
So <laughs> this is interesting. If you yeah. burned out your interesting projects, you'd be done in June eighth. Yes, yes, or, exactly. Or January eighth. Yes, yeah, exactly. Right. right. And so, uh, and so, part of the discipline comes to: is this one of those few? Right. Because yeah. if you do just one of those few, then you end up with a. Um, because, uh, by the way, the other thing about them is frequently these projects are 10-plus year journeys. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? we're seven years yes. in. Who would have thought? Yes. My God. And so, yeah. so you really go into it. And so that's, yeah. that's the kind of thing. And so it, it's, it's, it, it has that highly selective, highly thought combination of art and science. Mm-hmm. There's always some art in the judgment as well as, as, as metrics and data and science and learning ex- expertise. Yeah. And, then, um, and then when you, when you go... You're in it for a while. Yeah, I guess. I feel it. I feel the support from you guys. And I, I watch you interact with other founders. You guys do a good job of bringing us together. We're just at a summit. Um, I find those things incredibly valuable. I get to hang out with other people who are all on this together, all having the same problems. Well, obviously that summit was also in the scale. I think yeah. that was called Great Scale. Yep. And that was like one of the things we'd realized was said, oh, well, not only should Reed be writing this book, teaching this class, and doing this podcast, but also we should actually bring a group of people who are all tackling these problems and have them meet each other, have them meet a bunch of interesting content on the stage yeah. and try to amplify these journeys. So true. And one of the things, so Joe Jebia from Airbnb, um, we'd been in the same circles before. He'd been here to Creative Live. We reconnected at the event and he's been on the show, recorded with Joe not too long ago. Um, so in the, uh, I guess- I um, learned things from Joe. Joe's design sense is awesome. Amazing, yes. right? Incredible. And that's one of the things I'm kind of doing is I want to flip the script on you here and see how you do. So what Joe advocates and I advocate here on Creative Live has been to do unscalable things. And the example of unscalable, you know, and then you figure out how to scale them, obviously, if they work. But uh, with Joe, and to hearken to some of the audience here um, who are watching today, one of the biggest game changers in their trajectory was professional photographs of the spaces at Airbnb. And he said at first, him and Brian, they went door to door for the top 20 properties in New York before they were anything and photographed them as opposed to dirty dishes in the sink and having the owners of the Airbnbs photograph themselves. So they went there, very unscalable to have the founding team backpacking around New York for five days to take all these photographs. and. And Joe, you know, touts that as a game changer for like literally the, when they started doing professional photographs, the, t- the, the, the trajectory of their business changed. So as someone who advocates scale and, and being a master of it, how does this wildly creative but non-scalable activity, how, does that, how do you reconcile those things? Well, so um, as you probably know, actually, in fact, uh, uh, Joe and Brian Chesky were both at RISD. Mm-hmm. And the title of, of, of the episode that featured Brian was Handcrafted, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah. Which is first you have to do things that don't scale in order to scale. And so uh, the story about going door to door with pictures, some other things were all things that were part of that episode. And look, the normal thing is everyone presumes that you should start doing the scalable things right away. It's one of the mistakes that comes in. And, and almost never are you actually building the scale the first thing that you're doing with it. And if you did, you just imagine trying to build all the things yeah. to scale on day one, yes. you'd never get 90% yeah. of them done. Yeah. You'd yeah. actually just never get anywhere. You, yeah. just, you just die. <laughs> and, so, and so part of what you, um, what you do is you say, okay, 
whether it's product market fit and resonance with customers, whether it's uh, okay, let's it's the same reason why you prototype. Let's let's see how this works. Mm -hmm. Let's see which parts of this are particularly important to do. And and so part of what uh, Brian and Joe do is that they they have this process they call ten star design. I don't know if you've heard this from them, but it's it's like mm -hmm. what's the ten star experience? And so they said, okay, well, say you're going somewhere. Well, the ten star experience is uh, your plane lands. And the entire city of San Francisco is lined up in a row to greet you. To welcome you. The mayor is there, <laughs> you know, with uh -huh. with flowers and a beverage, <laughs> you know, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And it's pretty. It's like, okay, well, we can't do ten stars. What does nine stars look like, and so forth, down to, oh wait, seven stars we can do scalably, <laughs> right? And so let's do that. And and so it's a design process, and then it's a prototype and try it, and. It's actually at every level. It's not just product. It's also frequently organization, uh, frequently questions around uh, kind of like uh, unique strategies and go to market. Yeah. All of those things have this initial handcrafted phase. Uh, to me, that's uh, I think it's the Eames brothers that have a quote about you know the, the makers of the chairs mm -hmm. and furnitures. The details aren't the details. The details are the thing. And to me, that's one of the things that Airbnb has, and especially in their, you know, in the last five years, have just done such an amazing job on the details. Yeah. Now, and, and by the way, they're doing that now because in November they they released this um, thing called Magical Trips, mm -hmm. which is we could make any place in the world a tourist destination because we enable the creativity and the entrepreneurship yeah. of. Uh, of, of kind of micro-entrepreneurs to create an experience. So for example, you say, well, why would Detroit be a, a tourist destination? Great art scene, great urban farming, yeah. like a bunch of things. And you could, you could have a, a entrepreneur say, I yeah. am going to make Detroit a fascinating lens into the modern American cultural experience, and then a person might want to go for that. And that's, they're handcrafting it right now. Yeah, it's, and they're just doing such a good job. Yeah. I was just on the phone with uh, one of the folks that runs their photography department. They're just, it's, it's beautiful to watch them work right now. They're just really hitting a stride, I think is cool. Um, so if we've been talking about small, handcrafted for a little bit, um, I wanna you know, go back to, to scale for a second. And as you, there's so few folks who are on the other end of these cameras who are ever gonna build something that scales. Mm -hmm. You know, I think here at Creative Live, we've got 10 million students. You know, it's like when you have 50,000 students, you want 100,000. When you have 100,000, you want a million. And when we hit 5 million, I'm like, 5 million, we're just getting started. I want 10. Now 10 is not interesting. I want 100 million. And, and yet there are so many lessons that folks who are listening can apply. Help me uncork just a couple of the lessons that for, again, if there's a, a thousand people who are watching right now who are ever going to build this co a company that, and I'm just, if there's a hundred thousand people watching, maybe a thousand are ever going to build a company that has more than a thousand employees. Yep. So, but yet there's so, there has to be so many lessons for the folks at home to take home. Why don't you uncork a couple of those for me? So, uh, well, so we've done the initially, don't try to figure out scale first, try to yep. figure out other things, and then be thinking about scale as you're figuring that out in order to, re to, to try to reshape it. Almost forward. with Cheryl's lens on it. Yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, uh, another one is uh, you, you very much need a strong company culture mm -hmm. in order to scale. Uh, because, uh, especially if you're scaling quickly, what, what, what I call blitz scaling, because uh, you can get to a chaotic mess 
and essentially you need to have horizontal accountability in the culture where it isn't like we are this from the CEO, it's we all know we're this and we're all holding each other accountable, including yeah. you know, the, the, the individual employee holding the CEO accountable to yeah. this is our mission. Uh, and so uh, intentionally designing a culture and part of a good culture isn't just um, we are excellent. That, that's idiotic. Right? Yeah. Everyone's seeking to be excellent. <laughs> Uh, a good culture is this is who we are and this is why some A players wouldn't work here and this is where we would take pain and suffering in order to stay true to our culture. And so for example, at early on LinkedIn, what we realized is we were gonna make a lot of our revenue from companies, but like our first cultural value is members first. E.g. the, the people who use the site yep. for free are actually in fact our top customers, not our only customers. Yep but our top customers, because yeah. businesses naturally orient towards revenue. Yeah. So they go, oh, the companies are our, com our customers. And no, 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 each individual member. And so, and so part of the sacrifice is, yes, we will sacrifice some revenue. Yes, we will sacrifice some things that our other valuable customers, companies will want, because individuals are our top customer. And that's part of how you define mm -hmm. culture in some, in some uh, good way. And then the last one, uh, and you know, there's obviously you know, 10 different uh, episodes in Masters of Scale, and there's book that will be coming out hopefully next year, you know, we'll present <laughs> on writing class enough. Some work to do. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, the, uh, um, but one of the key things is also to understand triage. Um, so I think the episode with Selena Tabakawala, who was the um, founder of Gixo, was uh, titled, kind of fun, these are all June titles, Burn Baby Burn, but it's, you have to let fires burn. Right, so part of it in the scaling thing is there's multiple fires, yep. and you focus on the ones that you have to do now, and let the other ones deal with later, yeah. which is you know it leaves you a little bit of a sunburn and a bunch of other things. <laughs> <laughs> right? it, you know, it, there's definitely scar tissue. Yeah, this that comes makes with me it. feel good. Just yeah. keep telling yeah. me this. I, like, <laughs> there's plenty of fires yeah. burning right now. Yes, exactly. And and part of the experience that you learn, and part of why, like for example, a network of advisors and support and everything else is is helping with that triage, right? Yeah. Uh, and so those are amongst some of the, the kind of key lessons for figuring out scalability. And what's more, I think the interesting thing is even if people are not um, themselves entrepreneurs trying to build these businesses, I think it's useful for large companies to know. I think it's useful for people who are trying to understand, well, uh, what are the kinds of, why is it that Silicon Valley is going and having the impact it is, and how do I understand how to participate, navigate, understand that kind of transformation in the world. Yeah, and that, that, those same principles in some way, shape, or form apply to small businesses. Like, there is a culture in a small business, and if your culture isn't accountability to the people to your left and to your right, and it's just to your boss, yeah. it's gonna be, yeah, it's gonna be a problem. Um, all right, so for the folks that are building companies, one of the, that's a, a new thing that we're talking about a lot here. We've got folks like Red Bull and, uh, Microsoft, and we're, we're you know helping them educate in creativity and innovation are the, the hot buzzwords right now. I think one of the things that we've done great here is emotional intelligence, how to be a great speaker, presenter, good body language, and and, um, and yet when oh, let's see what's the right way of getting at this. So uh, I wonder if that's the right way to go. Well, for the folks at home. Who are never who are never going to scale a big company, and for whom these skills are critical? How? What's the lens that um, 
Like, what is the lens that these big companies put on that stuff? Do they care about creativity and innovation? Do they care as we think about having to work with them? Or um, like, what is what is Facebook think about creativity and innovation? What does uh, how important are these soft skills to the companies? Because we're this is almost a personal ask here. Like, mm -hmm. yep. we're I never anticipated building an enterprise side of Creative Live, and now it's just all this in. It's coming over the transom. Tell me that it's valuable, or tell me to, you know, bark up a different tree. And if it's valuable, why? So, um, well, it's obviously very valuable. It's difficult to teach, mm -hmm. and help cause learn and it's difficult to it's a little bit like you know everyone knows that you need to be innovative yep. in the modern world yep. and then you say what is that and it's like oh yeah. you, <laughs> much yeah. more challenging and so um but it, it's on the ends of it's like what maybe want to go here and it's a little bit of a squishy mm. topic but it's the culture part because we need a culture mm. of creativity and innovation you need a culture of transformation and helping people like all the soft skills they used to be nice to yes. have and now it's obvious that the yeah. companies that are masters at that, yeah. they promote that. So yeah. how, how should people think about learning these skills? Well, so, um, look, I think the people have a natural aversion. Actually, people tend to be more risk averse. So the bulk of humanity mm -hmm. tends to be, uh, I, don't, I, I want to avoid error more than I want to accomplish amazing things. Yeah. And it's reasonable enough, it's rational, sure. you know, it's part of how we get trained. It's like, you know, for example, avoiding the, you know, being eaten by the lion is more yeah. important than getting the banana. Yes, <laughs> right? sure. So you, our two million year old brain is <laughs> yes, telling us this. Yes, it's exactly. a, yeah, it's getting in our way. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, rational enough and yeah. understood. But the challenge is, is that actually, in fact, uh, more and more of how we navigate our careers is like playing it safe is actually slow death, right, versus a chance at, yeah. at, a, at, at serious life. And so part of what you, you, what you need to say, okay, I need to figure out how I can be creative. Being creative will always involve some risk. Yeah. There's always that sense of vertigo in creativity because it's like, I did this thing and I think it's amazing, but it's not always amazing. And it's, I'm scared. <laughs> and I'm scared, yeah. right? And so from, a, from an individual point of view, you need to navigate that and you need to learn the skills and you need to be able to take the risk. And then from a, a company and a culture point of view, you need to be sufficiently encouraging. It doesn't mean, like, actually one of the funniest things I saw from a company once is, we celebrate failure. And you're like, that's idiotic. Nobody does that, <laughs> right? Really? Nobody in Silicon yeah. Valley celebrates failure. What we celebrate is, is learning and learning fast, and which includes failure yeah. and recovery. Yeah. And so having that in your in your culture, which is, you know, how do we essentially, uh, you know, kind of build something amazing is really cool. And I'll give you an example of a modern kind of CEO context. Uh, the team that built the uh, Alexa Echo is the same team, more or less, that built the Kindle Fire Phone. Now you say, okay, Kindle Fire Phone, not a big commercial success. The normal, like, That MBA was the nicest thing. way it's ever been put. <laughs> yes. Not a big commercial success. Well, you know. Fair enough. Right? Fair enough. Jeff may be on the show someday. We've got to yes. preserve our... Right. Yeah. So, uh, but uh, part of Jeff being a great CEO is he didn't do what you would expect, like a MBA program to say, well, that's the team and you get rid of them and that was it. He went, no, no, okay, look, we, put, we took that shot. What's our next good shot? Yeah. Oh, building this other device. And so literally, that whole team moved over to that, minus the people who just only wanted to work on phones. Yeah. I mean, literally the same team. And 
That's the kind of culture that if you have it, encourages people to continue to take creative shots. Yeah. And when they look around and see that's how other people are treated, well maybe I can too. Maybe I can actually go take that risk and so forth because as long as I'm learning, uh, you know, uh, making a really intelligent uh, play mm -hmm. for it and recovering and playing again, then I know that the company has you know, my back, has this alliance with me, yeah. and that's super valuable. Beautifully put. Thank you for bringing my sort of, I wasn't quite sure how to get at it. We'll talk about the alliance in a second, which you just uh, mentioned. Before we do, I think we're going to keep pulling on this thread, which is some of the things that, uh, that the modern uh, company, you know, small, medium, and large, have to focus on because it creates amazing things. It, the, the inputs need to change in order to create greater outputs and more impressive outputs. And one of those things that's been, become wildly evident is diversity and inclusion. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. I know mm -hmm. it's, it's on the hearts and minds and lips of, uh, of a lot of smart folks, but you have, uh, I think, a unique perspective on it. So talk to me about that if you can. Um, so uh, Silicon Valley very justly uh, gets some criticism about not being sufficiently diverse and inclusive. Mm -hmm. And, um, and you know, like there's kind of two simplistic points of view on this. Uh, one simplistic point of view is to say, um, uh, hey, look, it's a meritocracy and all just works out and da, da, da and these people are all idiots, right? Mm -hmm. like, like there are many more talented uh, minorities uh, who are capable of playing this game that are in this game right here. Yep. And so full stop, that statement is just categorically wrong. Yeah, <laughs> right? absolutely. So simple view you want to. Simple view number two is, oh, it's all because you're sexist, racist, etc., and you and 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 the whole industry is corrupt yep. down to the last. Usually in this case, white man standing or yep. white Chinese Indian in the Silicon yep. Valley case, and that that no one's really trying to work on this and make it happen. Right. And so uh, and so it's just a bunch. And 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 the truth is. We have a serious problem we need to fix, and it's a hard problem, yeah. right? And you actually uh, need to get through it. And part of it goes everything from pipeline issues, which you have to work on, to putting extra energy. It's a little bit like when you know there's a problem, if you think you're a good person, are you putting extra energy yeah. every single person to trying to solve this? Yep, over-indexing on that problem. Yes, because mm -hmm. that's how you say, yes, I care about this, yes, I'm doing it, not I'm just mm -hmm. gonna white you know, going, yeah. sure, I care about diversity, yeah, if it, yeah. If it so happens to yeah. be the right diverse candidate calls me, then hey, I'll yeah. hire them. Yeah. Like, no, 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 you care, you work, yeah. right? You, you, you put energy and blood into it. Now, uh, I think one of the things that you're also referring to is, a couple weeks back, I uh, wrote a post called the Diversity Pledge, because we have a, um, uh, we have a particular problem in the venture industry and in that there's a, the, the vast majority of venture capitalists are men. That's part of the diversity problem yep. of something that we need to improve seriously. And you know, Greylock's been working on it and, yeah. and other firms have been working on it. It's, you know, it's the, there are firms that are actually yeah. really working on yeah, this. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> right? it's um, and, um, uh, but... The problem is there doesn't exist essentially an HR function between VCs and entrepreneurs. And if you roughly say, look, say there's 3,000 VCs, I don't know what the number is in Silicon Valley, you know, some percentage of them, 10, 5, 2, 20, you know, something, uh, don't understand that, uh, that, that any kind of sexual approach 
to people from within the positions of entrepreneurs pitching them for money is wrong yeah. the same way that a you know, a company manager would say, hey, it's just consenting adults, or a university professor would say, hey, it's just consenting adults, and you go, no, 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 no. There's a power dynamic <laughs> It's a power dynamic, yeah, it is categorically unacceptable, it makes the other person feel unsafe, yeah. makes them feel unwelcome, <laughs> you know, yeah. makes them feel that this is uh, not the right place for them, that people don't care, yeah. um, and so it's bad, yeah. <laughs> right? Straight up bad. Yeah, straight yeah. up bad. Yeah. And so what happened is uh, Reed Albergati, the uh, reporter for the information, wrote this excellent story, very well researched, and uh, there was insufficient uh, protest and outrage about this. And, and I had been feeling it, and I, I, I read through a post from Sarah Lacey on Pando, and I went, yeah. she's exactly right. And, uh, and so I got up early one Friday morning, uh, more to create a kind of a shaped here is how we can, we, can, we can put a set of voices together on this, yeah. which is, um, look, until we establish what the right HR functions and everything else are, which, you know, have to have investigation and have to look at this with some judicious. Now, Reed did that. He, yeah. he interviewed a ton of women, got three of them on the record, <laughs> right? Yeah. Three other ones reporting similar incidences, not on the record. So you don't have a he said, she said, as I put in my post, you have a he said, they said, yes. very different category yep. Yep. of, 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 argument. of yeah. argument and response. Yeah. And, um, and we should simply say, all of us will simply not do business with these people. Whether you're an LP, a GP, an entrepreneur, you, you, you find this and don't do business with them. And that's a minimum statement. Yep. It's, it's, in, it's in the direction. And then part of this modern social media world is you, you create a hashtag for it, you create a, a movement for it, yeah. so that people can sign up. That was Decency Pledge, and that, I think, has had some positive implications. Just, again, Decency Pledge. Yes. Folks at home. Yeah, it's really, exactly. really, it's turned into something very powerful. And, um, and I think we're now looking at what are the things that we do uh, in order to uh, help cement and, and make the inertia towards that much better pattern behavior. Now, one thing I want to say, because some of the comments are on this stuff I thought was um, it's just important to mention, is, look, there are a bunch of, of, of bad jerks yep. with terrible behavior, and uh, we should disallow that as much as possible. That doesn't mean, that's still a minority. It's only a small percentage of them. Yep. And so then people say, Silicon Valley bad, tech industry bad. Yeah. So there's like, no, 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 yeah. some jerks, yeah. and we should not let the jerks be jerks. Yeah. <laughs> right. Hold them accountable. Yeah. Yes, and hold them accountable, yeah. and, and, and part of the reason, uh, like probably the central drive I had for this is um, uh, the more uh, entrepreneurs, including most especially, because it's heavily unrepresented, underrepresented, is women entrepreneurs that we have, the more creativity we'll have, the more great companies we'll have, the more, Talent and the and, data is pretty clear. Yeah, they yeah, actually grow company yeah, yeah. women grow companies faster than men on X axes. Yeah. yeah, it's super important. Yeah, right, and so literally, there's a moral principle, but it's also just a self-interested principle. Yeah, we want to make sure that they all feel like yes, this is this is a welcoming community. This yeah. is a place that I can play. This is things I can do, yeah. and it's beholden on all of us to make that happen. It was, it's. I just wanted to applaud you for taking the stand that you did. That was really uh, inspirational, and there's a ton of work to do. We're at Creative Live. We are on average, 100% higher than Silicon Valley and or national averages on women in leadership across every single position at from from manager to executive team. Awesome. I'm really proud of that. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think the, the on the other side of diversity and inclusion is not any sort of uh, quota, but just the richness of the environment, the um, opportunity for great ideas come from, coming from a wide range of backgrounds and disciplines and uh, 
to me, that's just been so empowering. It's been really fun. And I think that's a message that I want to make sure that people out there in the world hear. Um, so I, I've got a, a couple of notes here. One of them is, is about leadership. Mm-hmm. And I think you have either hired, coached, mentor, or are yourself one of the best leaders in, uh, in entrepreneurship mm-hmm. today. And I, I look at Jeff Weiner as an amazing leader. He's someone who, who uh, James introduced you, if I'm not mistaken, you hired him, Correct. CEO of, of LinkedIn. Also, his record is impeccable. He's just an amazing leader. But you also get to see leaders, and this is leaders of all company sizes, because there are people that have three employees that walk into Greylock. And sometimes one. Yeah, sometimes one, <laughs> employee of one, right? I got an idea, and I'm, I'm the sole employee. What are some of the most classic mistakes that you see leaders making and at, at any mm. scale or any size well I mean, uh, like there's, there's obviously be, a ton yeah, <laughs> the, the yeah. list of errors is 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 long much longer than the list of successes yeah. and tools and techniques let's see let's go for some of the more subtle and important ones okay the first is that the game changes this is a little bit like the master's scale and blitz scaling and yeah. else and frequently what happens is what got you here is not what will get you there and so like for example another uh, of the kind of lessons in, uh, that we might, cent- we might in the, uh, the next Masters of Scale season focus as an episode is you go from doers to managers and doers, you know, who, or all the managers are also doers, to managers of doers, to executives of managers, and, and this whole, the, the whole nature of the leadership game changes as you go through this, time, yeah. this sequence. And you have to constantly be asking yourself, what does the new game look like? So sure, you might have learned, you might have really done the old game, but it's a new game, yeah. right? And so that's one. And sometimes, by the way, you know, the importance of culture, uh, the importance of high integrity, all of those stay the same. But for example, how do you manage communications, or how, or what are your responsibilities as a leader? Those kinds of things change. So that's one. I'd say another is uh, um, to really actually think about, so again in scaling and that pattern, is uh, people tend a little bit to try to get to, to stay too comfortable. And some parts of it are important. So for example, one of the things I learned from Jeff is the importance of the parallels between a leader, Jeff Weiner, the leadership team and, and sports teams, which is an efficiency of working together, a shorthand of working together, a ability to make decisions, in effect of a shared context, and a set of those things that that, that really make a high-performance team. Yeah. Uh, and that's super important. But you also um, want to be thinking a lot about uh, when do you make transitions. And it's uh, another, and actually another person that I met through Jeff is a guy named Fred Kaufman, who uh, is an excellent author of a book called uh, Conscious Business, uh, which um, I think is actually, in fact, one of the things that when you think about, like people say, well, you're making transitions in leadership, you're, you're, it's because you're hard-edged and you're, you know, you're, you're making that difficult decision where you shove that person off the boat and so forth. And actually, in fact, Fred makes this awesome and very important point in the book, which is if you think of compassion, is like, for example, take, for example, doctors working on patients. Mm-hmm. And you say, well, this, is, this doctor is not doing their job well. Well, when you actually get them out of the building, you're actually being hugely compassionate with their patients. And so compassion is this aggregate thing. It's, it's your customers, it's your employees, it's the set of things. And so you have to have compassion for the whole group, which sometimes can be something difficult for an individual or a small number of individuals, but yeah. you're trying to maximize compassion across it. 
And, and that's another thing that uh, Jeff Weiner is a uh, great theorist and practitioner and leader in. Um, but you need to think about changes in your team. You need to think about uh, like, okay, I have a deep loyalty to this person, but how is it, like when you're, when you're going through these scales, how is it that, I, that we now really need to reconfigure in order to be appropriate for you know, the compassion for our customers, the compassion for our employees, and compassion for yeah. the whole group of these things. And sometimes that involves difficult changes. Of course that always means that you're as good for the individual as you absolutely can be, and you put energy in. But that's another mistake, is to, is to not recognize the needs and desires like for the, for the right compassion, the right mission outcome yeah. that you need to make changes. And so, um, and like for example, myself, you know, to, to apply that all the way, um, I tend to very strongly go, if I'm doing a job and I think there's someone else who's gettable who would be better at that job, I always trade for them. That's part of the reason yeah. I hired Jeff Weiner. Yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. It's like, you know, I wanted someone who was world class and who wakes up on Saturday morning going, how do I build an awesome organization doing this? That's one of the things I do. Yeah. Whereas I tend to think about product problems and business model problems and strategy problems. And I kind of think, okay, I'll do the org in order to do that, but yeah. the org is not how I live, breathe, bleed, et cetera. Yeah. And I was like, oh, job needs someone better, Jeff's better. Voila. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think Jeff is one of the most highly rated CEOs that I've ever seen. and, and uh, very inspirational on the on the tone of empathy, uh, compassion, compassionate leader um, for folks at home. If, if you're interested in leadership, Jeff is, is uh, an amazing, amazing guy. Hey folks, I want to inject another quick word from our sponsor, FreshBooks. I want to give a shout out to those guys. Reminder, FreshBooks is a cloud-based accounting software created specifically for creators, freelancers, and the self-employed folks like you and me. They just launched an all-new version designed from the ground up that is fantastic. A quick quick backstory, I once did for a whole year a paper ledger accounting and then did my own taxes, handwritten, without the help of an accountant or any software. It was horrible. I would never wish it on my worst enemy. And I just think about how much time and energy FreshBooks would have saved me in that year of my life. Uh, so simple to use. Couple of my favorite features. One is you can create an invoice in less than 30 seconds. Super, super easy. Another one is that, <laughs> this is related, you can see when your clients have actually viewed your invoice. So that removes that idea of Hey, I never saw your invoice. And then the last one, which is a, a big thing nowadays, is you can literally with two clicks accept online payments like credit cards. Get those funds direct into your bank account so you can get paid faster. And importantly, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day unrestricted trial for free to anyone who listens to this show. In order to claim it, go to freshbooks.com slash chase. And where it says, how did you hear about us? Enter the Chase Jarvis show in that little slot there, and you will have access to that free trial. How about, let's, let's, I wanted to go back to the Alliance. I, I put a pin in that, and I want to circle back. First book was the startup of you. Second book was the Alliance, and... Uh, I'm going to give just a brief overview and then ask you a couple specific questions. So for the folks at Omni Alliance, it's realizing and recognizing that the relationship between uh, employer and employee is changing. The dynamic used to be 40 years, gold watch, you know, retire, sail off into the sunset, and now it's very different. And uh, the hope is that a company can add value to the employee beyond just the paycheck 
And, and the way that you do that is by having a relationship. And so as an employee, you could come into an organization that believes in this principle and know that you're gonna grow and develop. And that's the thing that we promise here at Creative Live. And in turn, uh, the, the company gets people who are dedicated, who are not gonna be mercenaries, um, and who want to serve a couple tours of duty, learn some things. And the question, now that I've set that background, the question is, why did you write that book? Isn't that, doesn't that harm you? You can still operate <laughs> on those principles, but now everyone's got the secret. And obviously, there's a little tongue-in-cheek here, but, <laughs> but, but share with me. So I'll just be biographical narrative. Okay. Uh, so how the book came about was that I had written this book, The Startup View, which mm -hmm. we did a show yep, on some here, of Creative Live, yep, it's a great show. And, uh, and part of that, that, that book, Startup View, came from the commencement speech that I gave my high school, the Putney School, because I was like, what do I say to a bunch of high school students? Like, what does my path have to do with, and by the way, it's a very art school, and everyone's like, yeah, what, what does my yeah. entrepreneurial path have to do with them? Because like very few end up being entrepreneurs, mm -hmm. they end up being educators, mm -hmm. NGOs, a bunch of other things, you know, broadly. I mean, obviously there's a whole spectrum. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so what I did is be the entrepreneur of your own life. Uh, learn, like the modern life is, you don't have to start companies, but the skill set of entrepreneurs is the skill set that you need for a meaningful, uh, successful, uh, stable, safe, all of those things, yeah. modern life. And so, so I gave that speech, sent the, spe the commencement speeches, the only ones I, I write, so I sent it around. People said, oh, you should write the book. I went, ah, I'm too busy. Oh, Ben wrote this other really good book, <laughs> and maybe Ben will do this with me and we could do that. And so Ben and I, Ben Kesnoka and I did that together. And then what happened is, after I did all that, I went, oh, I'm here at LinkedIn, and yes, there's a shared philosophy, behind LinkedIn and the startup of you. But um, uh, I should uh, I, I should like send this to all of our corporate clients. And then I went, oh, if I sent this to our corporate clients, they'd go, oh, you're telling me my employees should quit and start businesses, even though yeah, it's, it's about being joke, adaptive, creative, yeah. entrepreneurial, yeah. like just not necessarily starting companies, but, yeah. but just being yeah. you is how you live and work. And so I went, all right, let's write an essay. Uh, about why it's so critical to have these talented, creative people, and how do you hire, manage, and recruit them? And what are some of the things that people like me and other people here in Silicon Valley do for that? And so I wrote up an essay, sent it off to HBR, because I figured, okay, you know, Harvard Business Review would be the place to do this. And, and they said, oh, we'd love to publish this essay, but would you really like to publish the book? And I was like, like book. oh, book. <laughs> right. and, and so we. And they signed you up for another six months worth of work then, didn't they? Yes. Um, but, you know, Ben Kesnoka and Chris Shea, um, we, we all came together. And that was actually the, the simplest book process um, that at least I've participated in. Because it was literally just describe what you do. Yeah. <laughs> right. yep. And make that available to folks. And, you know, we got um, some critique saying, look, this is only true for high growth industries. This is more true for tech. Um, this is true for when you have a lot of creative talent. And, and all of which is partially true, but I'd say the whole world's going that way, yeah. right? And so, look, this is the, the understand the whole world's going that way. And there's a particular thing, it doesn't surprise me that you gave the, the strong positive rendition of here's the solution and we do, this is you. Yeah. But there's another particular thing that, was, uh, that we, we detailed in the book, which was important to understand. It's like most people say, well, that's for the aspirational or for the stars versus the whole company. It's like, no, it's for the whole company. Uh, in the modern work world, we all know that people don't, the general rule is you don't work at one company your whole life. 
you go work in a number of companies. Mm -hmm. And then you think, how many times does the manager and the employee have that conversation about that possibility? Zero. <laughs> yes. Right. Exactly. Zero. Then you say, okay, what is the implication of that? Because they both know it. No Everybody knows it. About it. And no one's talking about <laughs> yeah. it. It erodes trust. Because if there's something that's a real issue between us, like, oh, well, maybe one or both of us are going to go work other places and we're not talking about it at all, then that means we don't really have a trusted relationship. Yeah. Oh, you want to have a company without trusted relationships? Good luck. Good luck with that. Yeah. <laughs> trust and accountability are the core yes. to growing anything. Yeah. yeah, so have a real conversation. And part of the real conversation is, look, I'd like, we might love you to work here your entire life, but it may not make sense for you. What we'd really love you to do is help transform our company, and then we will make sure that your career is on a transformative path, whether it's with us or elsewhere. And that's the premise of the alliance. It's beautiful. Yeah. It really is. And I read it as a, you know, I came back to take over CEO a few years ago and, and needed to do some rebuilding, and it was so helpful, thoughtful. It's the things that everyone's thinking and no one's saying. Yes. That, to me, makes a great business book. Um, so... Embedded in there, I think, is is a little bit of you personally, and we haven't talked. We've talked about your companies, your scales, your your scale, your show, uh, your firm, um, leadership principles. Very theoretical. I want to talk about you for a few minutes here, and a, a question is: Is there a part of your schedule, your personal schedule, that you protect from outside influence, such that you have room for the big boulders? Because real thought, transformative thought, meaningful. Um, that you know, those are the big boulders. And and as a as someone who who is always working on self improvement and trying to find the right recipe here, you know, what are the big boulders that you put in the pitcher of water first to raise the level of the water such that you can drink it? And all the little boulders they go around that. So what are your big boulders? How do you protect, create, mm. cultivate the schedule that you want such that you've mm. got room to do these things? So um, I need to do that better. That's not one of the things that I do particularly well. Um, uh, part of it is that I have a, little, a few too many day jobs at the moment. So there's uh, LinkedIn and Microsoft, there's Greylock, there's portfolio companies, there's working on books, podcasts, there's trying to avoid what I think of as the Trumpocalypse, yes. <laughs> right, in terms, uh, yes. of, in terms of this. Yes. And, um, and so a whole stack of things. And so that means that I'm actually enormously reactive across a, um, uh, across a large set of things. Now, uh, in theory more than in practice, right, okay. but I, I work towards... I appreciate I, your vulnerability here. <laughs> yes. I want you to know that. I, I work towards the, yeah. the, the, the practice. Um, what I find is that uh, in order to be seriously creative, um, I need to essentially clear my mind usually the night before. So I need to not be redlining, getting up stuff done, yeah, up, up, up to whatever yeah. hour, yeah. but also like stressing. and Like the, the evening before needs to be, it doesn't have to be sedate, but it has to be the kind of calming, yeah. kind of ready. Good night's sleep, and then the very first thing, get up and don't accept any other interruptions. And is it a half day, three days, whatever thing is, then immerse yourself in that. Minimum two to three hours to yeah. really get going. And sometimes what I'll do is I'll try to do that if I'm really working is I'll try to repetitively do calm, four hours, other stuff for, for the rest of the day, calm, four hours, calm, four yeah. hours as a way to do that because I also find that or even spaced out, like not 
like one day a week because that kind of thing. Because what I find is the background processes of I'm working on it, I tackled it, and then I put it back on the shelf, and then I pull it off the shelf, is very helpful for coming up with the right ideas. Yeah. And common in that answer, I've, I've had so many great thinkers and friends and peers and, uh, and leaders like yourself here on the show, and that is a theme, just mm -hmm. real blocks of time where it's quiet, and those of us use lead chaotic lives, you're always traveling, and and there's a lot of interesting things, and we're we're like crows, we see shiny objects, we're <laughs> passionate about that. It's it. There's no one's ever said I do my best work in in the throes of problems. You can be your best because you can rise to the occasion, but your best, biggest, freest thinking. No one's ever said that it happens when stuff's going haywire. So it's a it's refreshing. Uh, B I find it interesting. Uh, would you consider yourself a morning person? because you want to get up and be active, or is that just on the back end of a quiet evening followed by seven or eight hours of sleep, and, and is it the quiet before that is cultivating that opportunity? Uh, I find that my creativity goes down the more different projects and different emergencies that I've responded to, right? So, mm -hmm. so it isn't so much necessarily a morning person as much as to have maximally distanced myself from the triaged firefighting that is most of my life. Yeah. And so that's the calming of the evening, mm -hmm. and then the sleep. And then you get up and you're not being interrupted. Yeah. Right. And so that is when I'm at my most creative. That's when I'm at my most kind of blank page. That's when I prefer to read. Like I, I prefer if I'm gonna try to read, you know, whether it's you know anything from sapiens to you know uh, the seventh sense or any of these these you know super interesting books over the last few years. Um, what I um, what I try to do is I try to say I want the clear the, the to be able to, to read it and have it stimulate my own thinking, stimulate my creativity. But that means I need to not be going. Oh, I need to do that. Oh, I need to get that done. Oh, yeah. wait, wait, wait. This problem needs to be solved. This might this might solve it. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Because that's what the normal pace is. And if I if that's already been activated, it's hard for me to calm down from it. I, I can, yeah. but it's much better to just have it all quiet when I'm focused. Yeah, and A, thanks again for being vulnerable. Mm. Say you're not as good at that as you want to be. I am this. Yeah. <laughs> but that's something that, that the yeah. folks at home, and I'm, I'm trying to be, get good. I've been a terrible sleeper my whole life. Mm. I'm focusing on sleeping. Mm. Ariana's been bashing me about mm -hmm. that, of mm -hmm. course. Um, but and you this, know there's these dimmers on the computers and phones. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. You got my, my phone yeah. damn near turns orange at yes. like 10 o'clock. I'm yeah. like... I remember I did this, so it was easier on my eyes, and I very much want to turn this up so I can see yes. this, but uh, I, yep. I resist. Um, but as a result, I've become really protective of my mornings, and so it's lovely to hear a little bit about your routine. Uh, on similar tip, is there a belief, I'm trying to get people to sort of continually examine their belief, is there a belief that you once held that you feel like you have reversed course on? Hmm. In, There's probably a number of those. In, in the most, you know, in, in recent... Um, let's see. I'm trying to think of which one would be most. Yeah, and I hate these questions context. as, a, as yes. an interviewee because yes. you're like, do I have to pick the perfect answer right <laughs> yes. now? Like, what three albums yes. are your favorite? You're like, seriously, right now, <laughs> yes, my three exactly. favorite albums. Like, oh my god, I want. I don't want to say the wrong yes. ones, but just it can be something smaller. And and again, the the under the the point behind the scenes here is that we're all always yes. evolving. Oh, you don't know. And, you know. And if you're actually. Uh, one of my favorite questions of people is, uh, what would you tell yourself 
if you were to call yourself, like for example, if you call yourself at the beginning, I'm not saying sure. you should answer the question, but the beginning of <laughs> yes, he is. Creative Live, no, no, but yeah. the beginning of Creative Live, what would you tell yourself to do differently? Yeah. Because if you actually hadn't evolved your approach, your skill set, it's not perfect knowledge of the future, but yeah. this is what you're, you're not learning. Yeah. Like, like changing your mind oh my gosh, I would is, so many yes, things. is correlated yeah. with learning, yeah. right? And so, and beliefs, by the way, you should learn your beliefs too. Beliefs yeah. are not kind of... Um, uh, handed down. Handed yeah, down yeah. and fixed forever. I'd say that the... Um, well, even that is a thing, right? Just that your beliefs, if they're not always changing, then that's actually probably a sign yes. of you not learning. Yes, exactly. Like that's uh, yeah. there's, Maybe that's the meta... Yeah. That's the meta. Well, you um, should definitely be thinking, and so that, that's the reason I'm kind of indexing through the set of things. I, I guess what I would probably say is that uh, in interesting ways, I have both become more optimistic and pessimistic about human nature. So it isn't like I've just become more optimistic or isn't like it's, it's a changing shape. And what I... Are there certain axes under which, is that how you are, you're doing both yeah, at the same time? Yeah, and, well, like for example, on one hand, I think that when I look at a lot of, of, of people's behavior in groups, we have a real possibility of not just having kind of wisdom of the crowd, but mas madness of the masses, mm -hmm. right? And so, like, I was obviously, uh, you know, seriously dismayed with, with many Americans' choices as Trump as president. Mm -hmm. I thought that was, I thought, if you look at the tweets, if you look at the things he says, if you look at... Uh, you know, kind of the question of everything from implying, like, all oh, Mexicans are rapists, or they're saying they're rapists here, which is like, like just an evil statement, yep. right? Uh, and anti-American, yes. not the America that many of the people that I know and love bleed for, yes. right? Um, and so that makes you more pessimistic, because you're like, look, I can get it saying, look, we, we believe, as I do not, that, oh, Trump's a successful business person will help us return to business, but it's like, you cannot defend that position. You can't defend Trump without at least talking about how evil these things are. Yeah. There's no such thing as alternative facts. Science is important. I mean, just you go down yeah. and down. Reading is important. Knowledge is important. Um, compassion is important. Acknowledging error. He's never done that. Yeah. You know, that kind of thing is super important. And so pes increasing pessimism because yep. you see that happen. Sure. And then on the other hand, um, you know, part of what uh, is kind of delight as I get older, is I think I used to have a kind of a simple model of heroism, um, where heroes were the people like you know the 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 three hundred Spartans who protected Greece from yep. from the Persians, you know, like this, and um, and I think I've been uh, delighted to see uh, more everyday heroism, and and part of where I'm remembering that, and this was. You know, can ask me. It was kind of like, yeah. in a sense, what was the most recent stuff? Is uh, last week, I was at uh, the MIT Media Lab because uh, Joey Ito and a crew of folks there and I have helped create this thing called the MIT Media Lab Disobedience Prize, uh, and the event was called Defiance, and it was when do you take personal risk for social good? And we had uh, the um, the whistleblowers for the uh, Flint water crisis who were up huh? there. Uh, we had two of the uh, elders um, from the Standing Rock yes. uh, movement. Uh, we had uh, a climatologist who had been arguing climate's changing 
against a lot of pressure um, from very early. And we had these uh, two uh, women teachers, professors, who had created Freedom University in Georgia because Georgia had made it illegal in universities to teach undocumented um, people. And they said, look, education is how we progress. Education is how, how we become who we are. It's almost like a human right. So we're going to go create Freedom University. And like sitting on stage with these people, having given them these awards and everything else, was um, was a reminder of, of, of despite the fact that I have these intense uh, unhappiness about pessimism of kind of madness and masses and some yeah. things going on that they, we have these everyday heroes as well and so that's that's the complicated weave that's life right yeah. it's never linear it's never uh, and to me that I think the way you framed it is um, super appropriate and, and I think the lens on which everyday people that's another really important thing that I want to um, put a pin in this episode is that because we're talking about scale and building big companies and what I've always loved about you as a leader, uh, I consider you a friend, uh, uh, advisor, that it's always at the human level, the one-to-one. -one. And your background, I don't know if it's a background, but how you see technology and humanity interacting. I know you, you talked about yourself as an anthropologist at your core. Yeah. That's about people. Yes. And so I guess as I want to transition here, to, I want to get to your philanthropy in just mm -hmm. a second, but. Talk to me about the lens, This, what I think is a very unique lens from someone in your position that you put on the individual. Like you end up betting on not just ideas mm. in the venture world, mm. but you bet on humans. Um, you, even just the examples you've given just now of everyday heroes. Mm. So what role does the individual play in Reed Hoffman's landscape? Um, well, so in Startup View I had it's both I and we both matter, mm -hmm. right? And again, false dichotomies. Some people go, we is only matters, vanish I, and I is only matters, vanish we. It's like, no, 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 both. It's individuals in a, in a tribe, in a group, and so forth. And so individuals, in my view, and sometimes, you know, like Eastern philosophers may think oh, this is an overly Western uh, perspective, sure. you know, going back to the philosophy background. Individuals, I think, are fundamental. It's the accountability, the, uh, the, the onus that all of us have are the instruments of change, right? The decision to, to make a difference, the decision to do something, the decision to take a risk. That's part of the reason leadership's so important. Um, and so, uh, like, roughly speaking, for example, as an investor, I almost never invest in somebody unless I think that they are uh, what I call infinite learners, which is capable of learning the things at speed in order to make this game go because the entrepreneurship game changes constantly. And so I am a huge believer in the importance and centrality of individuals and individual choices and individual responsibility and individual power in order to make this stuff happen, leadership. On the other hand, uh, people you know, frequently calling themselves libertarians and else think, oh, all there is is individuals. And I actually think, no, no, we're individuals in alliance. We're individuals in a group. We're individuals in shared on a mission, team. spirit, a team, and team, et cetera, yeah. right? And, um, and so I think that the, the thing is where you say, well, I'm the I that's also part of the we, and that both matter. And so, uh, so for example, again, in good leaders in entrepreneurship, when you have an entrepreneur who says, well, it's all about me, they're almost always going to be terrible leaders, and they're almost always going to construct like, companies that aren't going to scale. Right? You really want people who go, how do I get as many amazing people, people who are you know, more amazing than me, to help with this mission? 
And those are the kinds of leaders that usually go a very long way. Awesome. Embedded in there was a little bit of um, a hint towards your work as a philanthropist. Mm. Um, and Tim Ferriss, good friend of mine, a 10-year friend, we've both been on his show before, um, and there's a lot of crossover between our audiences. And uh, you talked on one of the podcasts that you did with Tim about some of the nonprofit work that you're excited about. And you know, there's been so many names dropped. We've talked a lot about books. People are taking notes. We'll have this in the show notes, of course. Um, but rather than just say, how do you support Reed Hoffman? in Reed's life as a business person. Let's talk about Reed as a philanthropist and what are some things you're doing? I know you've been involved in change and Kiva and there's mm -hmm. all kinds of stuff. Like, what are some ways that people who love your message can support you? What are, talk to me about some of your nonprofit stuff. So, uh, there's many good missions, great missions in mm -hmm. the world. And for me, part of what I do is I say, okay, which ones do I have a unique tool set or comedian levers mm -hmm. to make a really big impact? Occasionally, I also do something just to support friends or because it has my own personal resonance or something. Sure. But by and large, the bulk of it is the very big changes. And so there's one swath that is how do we create the right kinds of consumer internet technologies that make a huge difference. So change.org, enable people to aggregate their voices to, to power, to companies, to governments, and say, change your point of view change your policy, right? Change what you're doing here to make it more human, to make it more compassionate, to- More to just, more, more yeah, ju yeah, Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so there's a whole stack around that. Um, individual empowerment, going back to individuals, kind of Kiva, it's like how do you enable individuals as micro-entrepreneurs? Mm -hmm. Entrepreneurship broadly, because part of how we make progress is we create these new industries, new jobs, so also Endeavor, which is high-impact entrepreneurs around the world. Uh, you know, I you know, can, can keep going, um, through various things. I mean, the most sure. recent was, um, but like this is again where you look at where you can be, for me, when I can be you know, kind of uniquely creative. You know, Joe and I were sitting around and I was like, look, I have this theory that universities can have a much bigger impact in the world by using prizes. And we talked about it some and, and we talked about what the Media Lab's mission is, which is building things to solve things. And we, we came up with the, the essentially the disobedience prize. Right, I love it. Right, and and part of it is to, again highlight the people who take personal risk for social good, yeah. and it isn't just political. Like obviously, uh, amongst the amazing heroes of of, of our you know kind of uh, you know this or our last century America, you know Martin Luther King, etc. Doesn't always have to be political. Sometimes it's yeah. art. Sometimes it's science. Sometimes it's yeah. you know Galileo, right, and um, and so uh, and so you know like okay, well. That's a unique idea. It isn't necessarily technology. It isn't necessarily you know entrepreneurship, but that kind of thing could actually have a big, big chance. I know the entrepreneur, the group to do it, the the media lab, its award committee, you know Joey and so forth. And yeah. so there's a, just a um, there's a, a stack of things. And actually, for people who are curious, almost everything that I do that involves kind of serious philanthropy, I write about at some point, just so that people are are aware of it. Um, you know, so for example, oh, and then the other thing I think is important also to think about on philanthropy is like multiple scales. So yes, I do think about world impact mostly, mm -hmm. but like local here to San Francisco, um, you know, I've helped the Exploratorium a bunch because science museums and children and exploration, creativity, yep. Yep. Um, and then Second Harvest Food Bank uh, down in uh, on the peninsula 
because by the way, if you don't if you don't feed people, uh, just opens that's pretty no, important. Yeah, right. human potential. It's it's the it's the raw squandering of human potential. And sometimes you say, look, if they can just get on their feet and get fed healthy food, yep. they have a chance at doing something amazing. Yeah. And obviously, you know, uh, one of the other things I I think one of the things that I most um, try to shift America culture in, fa- in the direction of is, is the Spider-Man line, which is with power comes responsibility. One of the things I, I, I fear comes too easily with kind of an individualist libertarian bent is to say, well, it's, it's my money and everything else. Well, no, no, it's the money that you've, you've, you've gained by being part of this society. You have responsibility. And so we here in Silicon Valley, look, there's a, there's a bunch of people here who are suffering and in trouble. We should help them. Right? Yeah. Doesn't mean you have to do everything. Doesn't have to drop, you know, everything we're doing. Yeah. But it's again that what are you doing to instantiate the fact you're a good person that you are responsible and you're doing something? And so, so this year for me, it's the Second Harvest Food Bank. Huge. Yeah. Cool. I was just with Tony Robbins in New York last week. Mm. He's going to feed a hundred million people yeah. this year. Yeah. The, the the thought of just these fundamental things um, that. You know, Scott Harrison has been on the show, Charity Water, then it's an amazing, amazing job. Uh, and I've just, I've always loved your, you, you seem to fight fires at so many different levels. You're just talking about massive global scale and then the food bank, food bank down the street. Uh, so much for us to learn from you. I want to say thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, we'll make sure that to, to capture all, this is a very dense show. We'll try and, <laughs> we went, we covered a lot of ground. Um, I'll try and capture all the show notes. I want to say, Hey, again, thank you. Thanks to Greylock uh, for the support that you guys have given us at Creative Live. Specifically, you, um, you've transformed a lot of lives, and I feel like you've got a lot, lot, lot left to give, so thank you very much. All right, that about wraps it up. But before I let you go, I want to say, A, a huge thank you. B, let you know how to find me. I'm basically at Chase Jarvis all over the internet, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, I'm very active on Snapchat. You guys should check it. If that's a platform that you enjoy, uh, check me out there, as well as all the other ones. It's a super important ask for you to share this also. Uh, subscribe via iTunes, SoundCloud, and or Stitcher. And most definitely, if you're willing to put in a little bit of extra juice, please leave a review on iTunes. That helps make our podcast more visible. Last place that you can check it out and and get some additional value is in my newsletter, which is chasejarvis.com slash VIP. That is where I put content out before it hits my social platform. So that's sort of the insider track. Leave comments all over the internet for me. I will track them down and respond as best I can. And uh, again, huge thank you for listening to the podcast. And I'm looking forward to the next episode already. I hope you'll join me next time.